The Neurotransmission podcast series is created by Novartis Pharma AG to help raise awareness and understanding in the community of neurological conditions. The views expressed in this episode and the podcast series are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of Novartis Pharma AG. Please visit www.novartis.com and then find our focus and choose neuroscience for more information. Hi and welcome back to another episode of Neurotransmissions. My name is Ellen and in previous episodes I might have referred to myself as Ellen Marshall but during this pandemic I've been quite busy and actually got married so I'm now Ellen Tutton. Getting married during the pandemic was a pretty hard decision to make and I feel that people living with MS are faced with difficult decisions all of the time which is why today's episode is mainly going to be focused on decision making. Now I am really honoured to be joined here today by Professor Gavin Giovannoni, Professor and Chair of Neurology at the Blizzard Institute of Bart and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry, as well as being a really well-known MS expert within the MS community. So just to hand over to you, Gavin, could you just do a bit of an introduction to yourself? And I think the first question I want to know is why MS? Why neurology? So yes, I'm in my late 50s now, turned 57 a few weeks ago. I trained in South Africa. My name is Italian, you can hear, Giovanni. The reason why I went to medical school was I was actually always interested in zoology. I wanted to do zoology at university, but my father got chronic renal failure and I got exposed to medicine and I actually really enjoyed the medicine. And so he uh, was on dialysis for about 12 years before he had a kidney transplant. So I got exposed to medicine in that way. And I applied and got into med school. Uh, why MS? Well, during med school, I was quite early on, I realized I wanted to do medicine, not surgery. It's just the way it works. I was keen on psychiatry, but when I met my first psychiatrist, it turned me off because psychiatry can be quite depressing. And so and I went through med school and my two interests were hematology, driven by essentially inspiring teachers and neurology and by the time I got to my house job which is your first year as a junior doctor I was toying between hematology and neurology and actually probably what turned it was working with a very inspiring teacher Charles Kaplan he's a neurologist actually left South Africa as well and he's based in London but he basically inspired me to be a neurologist so I went into neurology and then I got exposed really quite early to multiple sclerosis and it kind of brought the immunology and the hematology interest in and uh, I trained in South Africa and then when I wanted to do a PhD I decided to go abroad to do a PhD and I had a few PhD offers but I chose London simply because I was married then and my wife was transferred from South Africa to the London office of her company so it was just perfect timing we all ended up in London and never went home and that's 28 years ago. Well selfishly I'm really thankful that you are in the UK Um, because I think for me especially I've seen your name pop up so many times since my diagnosis and I think you know you're not just a neurologist to people in a one-to-one environment you're a neurologist to many because a lot of people like myself and within the MS community and people living with MS will read your blogs and they'll definitely, you know, listen to videos that you've produced and, and been a part of and and really feel that you are their neurologist as well in some ways. And I think for me right now, this is probably going to be single-handedly the longest time I've spent in the company of a neurologist, even though I have MS. And I think for me, that is a really, really important part of having a good relationship with a neurologist is, is time, which isn't something that we as patients often get 
And I'm sure that there's things that you will find from the other side of the kind of spectrum with it. You know, you feel that it's lacking within patient and a neurologist relationship. So my, my top thing would be time. I feel lacking sometimes. What would be your kind of most important points within a, a healthcare professional and patient relationship? Well, I think healthcare and doctor-patient relationships have transformed themselves over the last decade. And I think that's really related to social media and the what I call the democratization of knowledge. So you as an individual with MS has access essentially to all the information I have as a neurologist. I probably have the ability from experience and understanding the science to curate and filter that knowledge and know what's not good and what's bad. But at the end of the day, we've both got access to knowledge. So the question then is, it's not about me being in a position of creating barriers. There are no barriers, but it's helping you understand that information. So the person with the disease now is a complete partner and that old-fashioned patronizing doctor knows all, the paternalistic side of medicine is disappearing. It hasn't disappeared completely. And so you have to develop new systems. And it's also not about time. So when patients, my patients come to clinic, let's say I see them once or twice a year, depending on what the issue is. The consultation is not about that time. You know, there's lots of stuff that happens before where they get prepared for it. Because one of the reasons why we run social media and do blogs and research days and all this is so people are continually updated with information and education around how we practice in our center. And there's lots of contact time with the nurses, with the infusion staff, depending on what treatments you're on. So it's not just about you interacting with the uh, MS service once or twice a year. You're interacting continuously, depending on how engaged you are. Now, some people aren't that engaged, and uh, that's one of the problems I have, and we're all very anxious about the individual with the disease who isn't that activated, who doesn't have such high literacy, and I don't know how to deal with that problem. There's a lot of issues. Some people say, well, we shouldn't worry about them. They've always existed, but, but I don't think we should be leaving those people behind. We should be doing something for those people. No, I definitely agree with you. I mentioned at the beginning that, you know, I had a hard decision to make last year of my wedding and whether to go ahead with it or not. And and I actually found that decision a lot harder than, you know, what treatment I was going to go on because I was one of those people that went out and, and did research and I just tried to really just dive into as much knowledge as possible because, you know, knowledge is key and it really did help and support me throughout, you know, my decision making. And I thankfully had a really good neurologist in the end who I could have those conversations with or a nurse at the end of you know, email or a phone that I could just get in contact with if I did have any questions or concerns or worries and that really did help me you know I'm here six years on without having had a relapse and hopefully that's you know got something to do with the decisions that we made I know that other people find that that quite difficult to find the right information out there and, and you spoke about being prepared for meetings, you know, appointments and stuff as well. What would be your key bits of advice for coming prepared to an appointment? Because obviously they are very time limited. And I know that I only am going to have one appointment a year with a neurologist. Some people might have even less than that or only see a nurse once a year, depending on what trust or whereabouts they are in the world that they're under. So what would be your top tips to really utilise that time? I mean, there are some tools, some digital and paper-based tools, and certain of these tools are part of applications on smartphones, or you can get them on the web. Even the MS Trust has one, it's called Preparing for Your Annual Review, and it's basically a prompt. And also, when you go to an annual review, you can only really deal with one or two issues in detail. You can't deal with them all. And sometimes some of the issues are best 
done offline and done remotely using email or whatever because the chances of sorting those out in a consultation uh, are, are not possible. For example, bladder dysfunction. So bladder dysfunction is quite a complicated issue and the question is you've got to sort out whether or not they need a therapeutic trial or go for post-micturition after you've emptied your bladder for bladder scans. Are they taking too much caffeine or whatever that stimulates the bladder? So there's like a, a pro forma for that. And if you activate it, you can go through that yourself and understand where your bladder problems lie and, and just ask the nurse to refer you to the continence service, for example, for a bladder scan. So there are things that are developing outside of the face-to-face -face consultation where you're going to be able to self-manage yourself. These things that prepare you for the consultation are really just a prompt to focus and think about what are the issues that your neurologist can deal with there and then and help or signpost you to uh, the other issues. Don't feel guilty if you've got 10 items that need to be covered because when you're in the consulting rooms, that time is your time. And my personal opinion is you don't really, you know, the idea of, somebody put on the blog the other day, there was one of their consultants had like a little clock gave them 15 minutes and hit the bell, they had to go out. That's not the kind of way we practice in the NHS. You know, my personal opinion is if somebody comes in, they're very complicated and they need an hour, they should get an hour. If you just don't have an hour to give them, you bring them back the following week or you make a follow-up appointment to deal with the complex issues. And so I don't think people with MS should worry about time. They should really have a systematic approach. I do that in all my follow-up appointments. You know, you go through issues around all the symptomatic issues, the hidden symptoms, because that's what gets ignored in questions quick consultations. So Ellen, when you go and see your neurologist, I hope they ask you about fatigue, anxiety, depression, bladder dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, you know, sleep problems. These kind of things often don't get mentioned uh, in routine clinical consultations, but you know, they are the elephant in the room. They are an enormous burden to people with MS, particularly as you get more advanced disease. And they are the things that actually affect your quality of life. And unless we try and address all those issues, we're just not managing you properly. Mine, mine typically do ask similar questions. Sometimes they ask it more in a, in a conversational manner than a, a bullet point thing. But that's probably based off of conversations we've had prior where I might have had blood issues or other things. So I'll just ask me and check up you know, how they're going. Something as a patient advocate I've been working on is a questionnaire called your MS questionnaire. And it does pretty much, you know, what we've talked about. It gives you a tick list of things to really think about six months prior to going in or well, thinking back over the last six months about how your symptoms have been. And I think that's really important as well, because I think there's a tendency if you go to an appointment, you think about the last couple of weeks, you don't necessarily think much further back than that. And I, I'm assuming that you'll probably see quite a lot of people come in and only be thinking about, you know, how they felt over the last like month or so, not, you know, six months or even if it's been a year before then. And does that really hinder the support that you can give them? Because there might be signs of progression that you're not picking up on. Yeah, so when you do it, yeah, that's what we know, actually, it's been studied. The recall is, your recall goes back about two weeks maximum. So you, you've got to also try and encourage people with the disease to maybe not necessarily a diary but just have a little black book that when things do worry them they document them so they can come back to them and reflect on them and this goes for relapses you know a lot of relapses are missed because people don't volunteer them you know we've got to keep telling people that one of our targets is no evident disease activity so if you're having a breakthrough relapse even if it's a mild relapse that hasn't really worried you that much in terms of your function it's important in terms of the mode of action of the drugs because uh, what, you know the MS activity is what I call an iceberg what you see clinically is the tip of the iceberg 
And so even if you're breaking through with a mild relapse, there might be lots of lesions coming and going that are causing damage. So that's one of the things we try and encourage our patients to do is to document in a little diary form. I think the thing you're talking about is it's quite good because some of the things when people tickle you ask them, did you really mean that? And then they reflect on it and you can discuss it and you can find out that the questionnaire made them tick it, but it wasn't really uh, impactful, for example, because it's inconsistent with their other questions they've answered. But it doesn't really matter because it's asking people to reflect on their functioning. And yes, it may be picking up, and this is one of the issues, is it may be picking up early progressive disease, for example. But I find from experience, most people with MS know they've got progressive disease before you know. You've got the disease, you're functioning. If things aren't going well and you're going downhill, you know you're going downhill. And if you want to keep your head in the sand, well, there are people who go into denial. They try and deny things and they try and ascribe it to other aspects of their life. But if they want treatments for that phase of the disease or their treatment altered to try and address the pathology or the cause of progressive disease, they can't put their head in the sand. They've got to face that. They've got to bring it to the attention of the healthcare professional. I think something really important that you've mentioned there is the um, no evidence of disease activity. And I know there's a couple of things that you look for within that kind of bracket of the MRIs, relapses, EDSS scores, stuff like that. I wasn't actually aware that that was a way to monitor MS until four or five years into my diagnosis. So there'll be plenty of people listening to this and within the MS community that aren't aware of that and maybe perhaps think that it is just based on MRIs or it is just based on relapses alone. I've seen you've been posting on Twitter quite recently as well about some bit further afield than that. Could you just explain a bit more about why that's important and why it's not just based on things like a relapse and there's much more to it? So first of all, just to make, try and keep it simple, we think that it's the lots of these little inflammatory lesions drive all the damage. So, that, you know, when you're in a lesion, you transect or you cut the nerve fibers. And then some of the nerve fibers are damaged and they get programmed to die off in the future. So the whole strategy of MS is to, first of all, prevent those lesions from occurring. So the idea then is the earlier you treat the disease, the better the chances are. Because if you acquire too many of these lesions, you've acquired too much damage. So the idea is, that's one of the most important things about DMTs, it's prevention, preventing disability. Then when you're on these treatments, not all of these treatments work. So these treatments fail some people, and then people will have breakthrough activity, which could be a relapse or new lesions. So that's why we monitor them on MRI. So if you have now breakthrough activity, you've got evidence of disease activity, that's called EDA evidence. Then we would say to you, well, this treatment's not good enough for you. Let's get you to a more effective treatment or switch your class whatever and that's kind of routine practice now and we call that treating to a target and that's actually stolen that term treat to a target stolen from rheumatology most people there MS know people with rheumatoid arthritis it's the commonest autoimmune disease to affect joints and they've shown in the RA field that treating to a target really makes a difference and we actually we've now got data in MS by keeping people free of activity, they do much better than those that continue to have activity. The EDSS is slightly difficult because once people have reached a certain threshold of damage, as I mentioned to you, the previous lesions don't go away and some of those nerve fibers are programmed to degenerate in the future and we can't stop that with our anti-inflammatories. So this is why we've got to go beyond inflammation and now we've got to add on treatments in the future. And that's the next phase of MS is obviously giving you a really good anti-inflammatory drug to stop the new lesions from forming and then we also need to be able to develop add-on treatments to protect or to restore the function of the damaged nerve fibers. And so that's one of the problems with the EDSS because it measures disability is that sometimes we can't stop that process with anti-inflammatories. And this is one of the problems we have trying to tell somebody who's got progressive disease. This treatment 
is going to help you, but you may not notice it because you may continue to get worse. But based on our trials, we know people on this drug get worse more slowly. And I think that's something quite difficult to grasp as a person with the disease. Because if you go into a treatment, you don't want to get worse. You want to stabilize or get better. And unfortunately, our therapies at the moment are not really designed in the way they work to restore function. Have you found that for me with EDSS score, I ended up and being asked to do it online recently. And I just found that really difficult because for me, how I perceive my MS might be different to how a healthcare professional would perceive it. And I found that a really unproductive use of my time filling in this form because I just didn't feel like it was completely accurate and I could have quite easily been having a bad day and thought actually you know what I'm going to fill this in as if it's my bad day not kind of looking back over the last however many months. Have you found that things being virtual more recently have driven more you know issues like that and caused more issues because there's pros and cons for me I think having virtual appointments and things now because you know, I'm at the comfort of my own home. I don't have to travel really far to get there. But I also feel like they can't really assess me in the same way that they could if they saw me in person. Are you finding that the same? Are you finding it difficult by having kind of more telemedicine appointments with people? Yes, definitely. My skill as a neurologist is the neurological examination. I know how to do an exam and assess the nervous system and work out what's not working. And that's kind of very important. Two real main reasons is, first of all, to document relapses, because a lot of people have these things called pseudo-relapses lapses when they get the temperature things reoccur old symptoms come back so establishing where they've had a relapse is quite useful and also establishing what's happening at the beginning of the disease because if somebody's got weakness or subtle weakness in an arm or they've got problems that's important prognostically you can say that they're not going to do as well as people who haven't got normal signs and i found you can't do that you can do it a bit of it online, but you can't do it properly. So you have to have face-to-face consultations. But coming back to the EDSS calculator, actually, I designed it. I did it on a survey monkey, you know, about eight years ago. And the reason for doing that was really from the blog is that almost all the literature in MS, all the research uses the EDSS and individuals with a disease don't really understand the subtleties of the EDSS. So the idea was to create an online tool that would teach them what the EDSS was and also to give them a surrogate, just a crude measures, they could understand their own disease. Because there are some calculators online, Ellen, you can go into a calculator online, there's one run by MS Base, put in all your disease characteristics, you know, your age, your sex, ethnicity, and it asks recent relapses, and you put in your EDSS, and it kind of predicts your trajectory of the disease, in terms of how you're on average going to do. If there were 100 people like you, what's the average trajectory of those 100 people? But to do that, you need to have the EDSS. Now, the EDSS is a score done by a neurologist, because we've got to do an examination, and a lot of neurologists don't do an examination, they don't do an EDSS. So the idea was to create a crude estimate of the EDSS, just to allow people who read our blog to go to these online calculators so they could have something they could put in there without guessing. And you probably found that a lot of the stuff, particularly in the very lower ends, 0 to 2 on the EDSS, really requires an examination. One thing we want to do in the future is actually take those problems on the EDSS calculator and fill them up with online tests. So you can test your vision, for example, and you'll know if it's normal or not normal, and you can fill in that. In other words, improve on the EDSS and make the online version better than the real version. That's a future project. But you also got to understand, if I don't know if your neurologist told you that because you're on therapy in England, there's a database called Bluetech, which NHS England runs, 
and they require an annual EDSS score. And because that's part of the requirement of having people on high-cost drugs in this country, is that we have to provide the database with an, an annual EDSS score. And if you're not seeing people, we need to put something in there. So the EDSS calculator has been given the green light by NHS England saying that's sufficient rather than having to do a formal proper EDSS. So there's a box-ticking exercise to it as well. So I'm sorry you don't like it. but uh... No, no, it's, it's more of the fact that I think when I was first diagnosed, I don't know if this is a weird thing to say, but I was almost disappointed at my score because I felt a lot worse than what I was given. And then reading it back and having access to that information, I was like, well, I've got this, and I've got that, and I've got that. So why am I scoring at that level and I think that was quite upsetting for me and I think for some people it could also be without the knowledge that goes alongside it like you've just explained it could be quite damaging so you know if you're scoring a low score you might think I don't need to go and see my neurologist or I don't need treatment because I'm not you know my MS isn't that bad and I think you know for some people they will think like that and I think that's the the thing that I you know often find difficult with scoring and ratings like that because you know if it's just done online and you haven't got that knowledge and that communication with the healthcare professionals to tell you you know you still need to be assessed in different ways then I think it would be easy for someone to think that they don't need support when perhaps they do and then that's when you know progression could happen and I think that's the concerning part of it so I mean how you've just explained it is amazing but something else I really just want to pick up on that you mentioned a minute ago and I've forgotten what you've called them but you said when people have temperatures and stuff they can get a type of relapse. We call them pseudo-relapses. It's not a true relapse. Say um, the other one is called called intermittent symptoms. So I don't know what your first presentation was, but let's say you had optic neuritis, you lost vision in an eye, and then your vision recovers. It doesn't always get back to 100% normal. We know that most people who have optic neuritis, when you do detailed tests, you'll find that there are abnormalities, often around color vision, often what we call low contrast sensitivity, distinguishing between the gray scales on an image. And sometimes depth perception is a problem, particularly at night. So people who are opportunity writers, they need both eyes to judge depth. And so people can't really judge how far is this traffic light to the stop sign, for example. So there are subtle problems that in a day-to-day environment you won't pick up that. Now, what happens is, is when you get a temperature, uh, your body temperature goes up, the conduction fails, it blocks the conduction. And when your temperature comes down, it comes back. And that's called Utov's phenomenon. It's become a problem during COVID-19 vaccinations because a lot of people, when they have the vaccine, get a flu-like illness. They get a sore arm, they get a bit of a temperature, they sore muscles, they get mild flu-like symptoms and they often get worsening of symptoms and they think they're having a relapse but they're not having a relapse. It's just because the body temperature goes up and masks those damaged pathways. They may get blurring of vision if it's in the eye, they may get dragging of a leg, bladder function maybe, and then it usually recovers after a few hours to a few days and it often responds to drugs that bring the temperature down. So things like paracetamol and ibuprofen often uh, help with that. And you can actually take them prophylactically if you've got a history of pseudo-relapses by taking these anti-inflammatories prophylactically you can prevent them. When we started using interferons, people used to get these pseudo-relapses from interferon because interferon causes flu-like symptoms. And so part of the flu-like symptoms that they used to get would be worsening of their symptoms. So this is actually quite a common problem. It's not uncommon. Yeah, I think that's something that I found really difficult um, when I was first diagnosed. I mean, especially around the time of the month and things like that, I would definitely notice a change in my symptoms. And for me, it was really difficult to I was constantly thinking am I having a relapse do I need to contact my neurologist and and I think for some people they they can get really concerned and worried so just knowing that that's an actual thing and not something to be 
overly concerned about, but just something to address in your appointments is a really, really good point there. So that's helpful to know that that's a thing. It wasn't in my head. <laughs> Coming back to what you said, it's time of the month. So you probably know this being a woman, that when you ovulate, your body temperature goes up by about a half a degree. 0.5 and it's well known it's physiological and so in the second half of the menstrual cycle and that's sufficient at half a degree actually there's been research showing all you need is a 0.2 degree centigrade rise to cause autops or this intermittent symptoms and so that's what happens some women are extremely sensitive to it so post ovulation they will notice in their menstrual cycle that they get worsening symptoms and i call it catamenial catamenial refers to uh, the uh, menstrual cycle utov's phenomenon and actually by taking paracetamol or a long-acting anti-inflammatory you can prevent that from happening so i've got quite a few women with ms in my practice who we put on to naproxen long-acting anti-inflammatory in the second half of their cycle to deal with this exact symptom the amount of people in forums that I see post time and time again, and it's always a shock because there's no real information out there. If you Google it, you might find the odd thing here and there, but I don't think it's something that's commonly discussed. And I feel like it is a real thing. And for me, it caused me months and months of concern. And it wasn't until I think it was by other half pointed out was actually like, you do realise this is coinciding the same time every month that I was like, oh my God, yeah, that's correct. And, you know, it's, it's really helped me manage my symptoms and not feel worried and concerned as much as I would normally. Something else I did want to talk about, and we've had a discussion before meeting today to do this podcast, and it was about if someone was coming in to you to discuss a treatment, what would be your factors for consideration? Because I am obviously female, I'm of a certain age. So what would be your kind of key things that you would ask someone or expect a patient or a person living with MS coming into your appointments to tell you about, you know, would you expect them to to be quite open about their life plans or what their job routine might be like? What would you say are the really important things you need to find out about that person to make sure that you're making the best choices um, together for the right treatments for them? First of all, you've got to make sure the diagnosis is correct. So when I see a person for the first time, if they've come to me with a diagnosis, is I've always got to review the diagnosis. And I say that we now know that from post-mortem studies, these are people dying with the diagnosis of MS. One in 20 won't have MS. I'll have another disease. So the diagnostic criteria are not 100%. Some people think the misdiagnosis rate's gone up. So we check the diagnosis. And I'll even delay treatment decisions until we've made sure of the diagnosis and repeat some of the investigations because some of the complications of these treatments could be life-threatening. So you don't want to give somebody a treatment they don't need. Once you've made the diagnosis, then you've actually got to actually ask yourself the question, what is this individual's prognosis based on a whole lot of factors? There's about 25 prognostic factors. We tend to say this particular individual falls into a very good prognostic profile. In other words, their disease looks like if we manage it reasonably well up front, they're going to do very well. So it's a prognostic profile. And then you get the other side is the people who have got a very poor prognosis. So these would be people who've had major relapses, disabled, very high lesions on the load on their brain. They may be male, they may be minority groups. There's quite a few factors that play into this profiling. And those are the kind of people you would want to push towards the most effective treatments as soon as possible and not waste time. But the majority of people fall in between and that's where it becomes tricky because there's clearly new data that's emerged showing you that on average, this is not like if you were treating a population. If you put the population on the most effective therapies, they're going to do much, much better on average than if you put them on what I would call low efficacy, and then wait for them to fail and then step them up. So we call a step care approach. There's a change in the way MS has been managed, and most people now are beginning to start to flip the pyramid. 
So like you, we would say, let's not waste time on one of these lower efficacy. Let's give you the best chance of doing well. Let's give you the most effective therapy. Now, that decision comes with risks because more effective therapies are usually more potent. Some of them are more immunosuppressive. They've got more complications attached to them. And that's when we have to say, well, actually, based on this individual, you know, are they risk averse? Will they be prepared to take on these risks? Are they planning to start a family? There's decisions around timing. You know, some treatments you have to wait a few years before you can start a family. Other treatments you can do almost immediately. Some of the treatments are monthly infusions, for example. You know, if you're a busy businessman or even if you work in, say, a job that's remote, like agricultural scientist who's got to go around the country sampling or studying potatoes, having a monthly infusion for them is just not feasible. There's not a little calculator saying this treatment's for this person. Also, there's some people who had certain infections. They may have hepatitis B, for example, that excludes certain treatments. They may have had previous breast cancer, or they may have cervical cancer that's in situ, for example. They may have warts. I'm not joking, Ellen. Uh, just simple warts on the skin turns you away from certain therapies. Because when you suppress the immune system, because the warts are due to a virus, the virus goes crazy. So there's lots of little things that add up. So there's no hard and fast rule. But what you try to do, though, is balance all these factors and you try and make a recommendation. And I would call it guided decision-making. You would explain to the individual that based on what your disease looks like, what you want to do with your life in terms of both your social factors and your work, we would recommend these two treatments. Go away, do some reading, ask questions if you want, and then we guide you towards a treatment we think is best for you. In the past, we used to let patients go away and just come back and tell us what treatments they want. It doesn't work like that anymore because there are just too many therapies and it's overwhelming. To expect somebody to go away with a list of six or seven drugs and come back and say, I want this one, it's not feasible anymore. It's just too overwhelming. No, I completely agree. I think it can be very overwhelming, especially, I mean, just how much has changed in the last few years alone with, with treatments and the amount that's out there now. I think you're you're absolutely brilliant and I wish all neurologists were like you with their approaches. But unfortunately, that's not necessarily always the case. And you will find that some neurologists are really limited to what they can offer in terms of treatment or they don't have the kind of more personal skills to kind of really relate to that person living with MS and to be able to really dive into their lifestyle and their their situations. What advice would you give someone like me? Is Would it be important that I walk in and I'm like, this is what I want to do with my life? Like to go prepared and tell them and, and not always expect them to ask the questions. Like we can't always expect that neurologist to be thinking about know what's best for you if you do want to start a family should I have gone in prepared and said this is my life plan what would work around that or should I have just accepted what they had offered me no I don't think you should accept anything because it should be a negotiated uh, agreement this is what an expert patient's all about you negotiate in the past we had this thing called the compliance model where you listened and did everything what your doctor told you and we've moved to this it's called concordance where the patient becomes a partner in their management and so that has to be taken into account we're relying on people like you to challenge the decisions if you don't like them with knowledge and that's exactly what I did for mine and I found that quite difficult actually because I still remember seeing some correspondence between two neurologists I was under the one originally and the hospital there that I was at didn't do the treatment I wanted seeing these letters going back and forth between them I felt like a child of divorced parents 
um, both arguing over whether I would be eligible or not. And and some of the wording was really disheartening for me, you know, from my original neurologist saying, oh, they won't be eligible for it. And at that point, I could have read that and not gone to my appointment and thought, why am I wasting my time? It was a really difficult place for me to be. And I think knowing that I had rights and knowing what they were and knowing that I wasn't just being spoil or a snowflake by demanding you know a different treatment and it was actually well within my rights really helped me kind of power through but a lot of people won't have the confidence to do that and I remember it must have been 2016 17 being at a, a conference for lots of young people across Europe and someone handing me and I believe correct me if I'm wrong you've you had some involvement with this booklet called my brain health I think yeah the one and in there it quite clearly outlines what a person living with MS should be expecting treatment wise and I think that was a moment for me where I thought why isn't there more of this out there that actual neurologists telling patients telling the people living with MS this is exactly what you should be expecting and what you're entitled to and this is okay to ask for these things so I remember using it to take to an appointment and say look it says here I should be having an MRI every year I've had two since 2015 and one of them was my initial um, one when I first started having symptoms it wasn't with contrast it was you know very long time ago and the second one's been years ago now I mean I'm not due another one for another well I'm currently pregnant so I can't have one at the moment but post that pregnancy I'll, I'll have my next one are there more resources out there could there be more put out there to help empower people like me or you know people who aren't like me which is probably the more concerning you know people that aren't aren't you know happy just to take their neurologist's answer because they're the expert are there more resources out there that can be used to really really empower that person living with MS yes yeah, so I think the MS societies MS society MS trust shift MS so these are uh, charities that are filling that what we call the third space to try and help people navigate the NHS and provide them with information around that so that's the first thing is keep up to date by reading or subscribing to their news feeds, whatever. The second thing is one of the problems we have as neurologists or healthcare professionals, we think we're the gatekeepers, you know, so we're not the gatekeepers. You know, when NICE approves something and NHS England approves something, that's because they think it's cost effective and it's been vetted by the NHS and we're not the gatekeepers of money. And I think that's the attitude that's got to be trusted. As a healthcare professional looking after individual MS, our responsibilities to the patient, not to the NHS. We have to look after the patients the best way we yeah. And we're not there to save NHS money. So that's one of the reasons why some people don't prescribe certain drugs because they think they're too expensive, even if they've been nice approved, which is ridiculous. But that happens. I'm not joking, Ellen. We've got people coming to us for second and third opinions and their neurologist said that drug's far too expensive. I don't think the NHS should be uh, providing it and they provide them something else. That happens even today. I think knowledge, if you empower yourself with knowledge, keep up to date, know your rights. And there's no problem because one of the things about the brain health time matters document you read we actually put it together simply because we realized there was this inequity across Europe and in within the UK and by highlighting that this is inequity hopefully we will get people to change their behavior and we will raise the bar and that's another initiative that's been running in the UK it's called the Raising the Bar Initiative where we're asking all centers in the country to collect data to see how they're performing against the national average and hopefully if they see that they are not doing as well in terms of monitoring or whatever they may start understanding that they're not treating MS appropriately and they will question their practice and we raise the bar. 
We want to create a national audit where we actually see how well MS centres across the country are treating their patients. And if there are centres that aren't doing as well, we could question them why and see if we can help them. It's not about a stick to beat them with. We would like to say to them, look, you know, you should be doing X and Y. And can we help you? That's what it's about. I think that's, yeah, really interesting. And do you think that over the last year with the pandemic that it's got worse? I mean, I've heard so many people before being diagnosed with mild MS and told they don't need treatment. And it seemed to be coming from one particular hospital. And my concern there is that they don't have the resource to be able to give people the treatment that they need because they're struggling within in the pandemic. And I know this isn't just in the UK, this is just across the board. Do you think that's happening more and more because of the situation that we've been in over the last year and a half? Yeah, almost certainly. And they, I mean, a lot of reasons was centres, you know, staff were redeployed to COVID-19. I was redeployed in the first wave to the COVID-19 wards. We couldn't do face-to-face consultations, diagnostic pathways, you know, coming in for lumbar punctures, electrical tests, these things are all not available. So there are a large number of people that are stuck in diagnostic pathways, haven't been diagnosed yet. And you may want to know this, NHS England has just said that new prescriptions for new patients has dropped by about 30% in the pandemic, which means that those people are waiting to go on to treatment. It's not because MS has become less common. So yes, we're going to see the fallout from COVID-19. I have no doubt it's got worse. And also monitoring MRI scans. You mentioned you're not having your scan until next year because you're pregnant, but a lot of people have had their monitoring scans cancelled. So some people who would have been picked up for changing their treatment aren't going to get picked up. The thing about multiple sclerosis is not going to be, we don't count bodies. In some diseases like the cancer field, they count bodies because people die from cancer. You know, the impact of us not getting people onto treatment early or switching and all that will be disability. And that will take decades to manifest and maybe not manifest because we just don't have a national register that tracks disability. But I'll almost certainly, based on principles, COVID-19 is going to have a big impact on MS outcomes on average. And do you think that's something that someone, you know, living with MS could be pushing for? Like if they're not getting their, their MRIs or not getting their diagnosis, can they argue that can they push or is is now not the time to do that i think the time is right now to push because services are beginning to open up again and you know msc in my opinion is a is a semi-emergency i wouldn't say you have to be treated today or tomorrow sometimes you have to treat them today or tomorrow unusual but you need to be treated in in days weeks or months you don't want to wait half a year so within constraints of the nhs people should be prioritising and triaging people for therapy or decisions around treatment because they make a difference in the long term and it's all about time. I've got a collection of patients in my practice over the last 25 years where we've had delayed access to treatment for various reasons and they've had catastrophic relapses, you know, spinal cord relapses that left them paralysed, wheelchair users. So it's unusual, but, you know, one new lesion in a strategic area can be very disabling. And you don't know when it's going to occur. It's, you know, it's a bit of a random event, but do you want to take a chance on a roulette wheel? You don't. You know, if you have the disease, you want to be managed quickly and appropriately. You don't, have, you don't want to wait 6, 12 months to go into treatment. No, I think you know, it's been really, really amazing hearing from you today. And I think my, my takeaway from it is that as a neurologist, you are someone who puts things in such a way that 
it doesn't confuse my head. <laughs> so you're very good at explaining things, which I think is so, so important for any healthcare professional. So if anyone's listening in and they are you know, a healthcare professional, please take tips from, from Gavin here. And because it's so important that there's not loads of jargon and it is really easy to understand. And you know, from what you've said as well, the partnership there really does involve that person living with MS, being open and honest and being able to reflect not just on the last couple of weeks of their their MS and, and how it's been, but much you know further back, you know six months to keep record, to make notes, to log that. So if you had any kind of final tips, and I'll probably ask you if you could leave your top tip for a healthcare professional and the top tip for a person living with MS to really encourage them to have the best possible relationship they can. What would those top tips be? The top tip for the person with the disease is to activate yourself. I, I mean, some people don't like the term activation, but I think it is activation. What can you do to help your healthcare professional manage your disease? That's so taking responsibility for a lot of stuff in your life, exercise, diet, smoking, sleep, you know, all those things, okay? And learn about your disease. And there are many, many different platforms for you to learn. My personal opinion, use the MS Trust booklets first, the MS Society, and you'll follow our blog if you we post at a high level. But you know, unless you engage with your disease and understand it, you know, how can you challenge your healthcare professional? Healthcare professionals got to treat the patient as a partner. It's not about them. And also one of the things the healthcare professionals find difficult is dealing with uncertainty. You know, and this has been shown in COVID nineteen. We like to give black and white answers. I think people with the disease are absolutely up for accepting grey answers. As long as you're able to explain why the answer is grey, there's no problem. So deal with uncertainty. You know, Explain to them about uh, uncertainty. You don't know what's definitely going to happen, but you'll be there with them. Uh, and be open. Actually, to be honest with you, Ellen, the neurologist's role now is pretty small in the management of MS. You know, we're part of a big team. It's like a big juggernaut of a team. And so, um, you know, to think that we've got a big role, our role is probably most vital up front when we're doing the diagnosis, making getting sure the diagnosis is right, maybe around certain treatment decisions. But in general, uh, MS is now managed by a team of people, a large team, and the person with the disease is in the centre of that team. It's actually for them to direct it. And I think healthcare professionals, neurologists, have to realise that they, you know, our jobs are changing massively. And uh, you know, in the future, we're going to be a, a merger between artificial intelligence, online apps, algorithms, a little bit of neurological expertise thrown in. That's what I predict. <laughs> Managed by robots, can imagine that. <laughs> it's not going to be necessarily robots. A lot of the routine stuff will be taken away by algorithms. It's happened in other specialties, I don't, other fields. I can't see why the medical profession is going to be any different to that. It's been so enriching hearing from you today. And I mean, please feel free if you wanted just to now just to let us know your handle for Twitter and your blog post, if you can know them from the top of your head. Well, if they just search the MS blog, they'll find it. My Twitter handle is at Gavin Giovanoni, and that's all one word. I mean, to be honest with you, my Twitter account is mainly uh, broadcasts, the blog posts we do. And I'd highly recommend people going on and reading them and, and looking them, even if it is, you know, sometimes a bit more complex of language. I think it's quite nice to read that and you can always go away and do your own research off the back of some of the things you were saying. And, you know, like I said earlier, when I introduced you, like for me, you are everybody's neurologist, you're everybody's kind of point of call. You know, you're somebody there that's given me more answers for me going away and reading up on things than I have had from, you know, my own healthcare professionals. And it's no 
disrespect to them. It's just they don't have blog posts that I can go and read and like, I have that limited time of them. So for myself and the rest of the MS community that reads your, your posts, thank you very much for providing us with such insightful information all of the time and you know, for being someone who is so relatable and puts things in, in a way, like I said before, that it's really easy to digest and understand. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's been amazing chatting to you. Pleasure, Ellen. That's been with you. The Neurotransmissions podcast series is created by Novartis Pharma AG.